This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, and welcome to High Theory. Today we're talking about text with Matthew Kirschenbaum. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for coming to High Theory. Uh, before we begin, would you mind introducing yourself and your work? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. My academic title is Distinguished University Professor at the University of Maryland, where I teach in the English department. I've been there for about 20 years now. I've written a few different books, all of them focused on digital media, digital studies. I also work in the field of book history and co-direct a makerspace called Book Lab, where we do letterpress printing, among other forms of the traditional book arts. That sounds wonderful. And I have an inkling that our conversation today mm-hmm. is going to have an interdisciplinary character just like your work. So let me ask you my first question. What the heck is text? <laughs> what the heck is text? We could probably spend the whole time just talking about that. It's obviously a foundation word in most any discipline or branch of the humanities. To to do due diligence to the etymology, text comes into the English language from Old French, where it's derived in turn from the Latin textus, which means a tissue, and also associated with the Latin verb for weaving. These are connotations that people have played with for many, many years. For example, speaking of high theory during the heyday of deconstruction and post-structuralism, where the notion of a text as a tissue or even as a form of weaving was very much in circulation. For our conversation today, I'm going to be talking about text in a pretty specific way. And even though I'm going to be saying the word text a lot, it might help if you sort of visualize it as spelled not T-E-X-T, but as T-X-T. I see. 
In other words, the text that I am interested in talking about today is computational text, text specifically in its digital form as a string of character data encoded in a number of different ways, potentially from ASCII through Unicode to various binary formats. But ultimately, text in digital format, I want to stress, is also a form of data. Text is the stuff that we all read on our screens and books and A lot of us work with text all day long, and we're used to thinking about text in that sense, but computationally, text is also a data type. And apart from numerical data, it is the most common and ubiquitous data type in the world. And I want to suggest that that simple fact has massive consequences, not only for our understanding of what text is, but really for how the world works nowadays. No, absolutely. Can I pull you back a little? Not so much etymology, but because you mentioned deconstruction and this really interesting semantic nexus of text and tissue. So what does it mean for your work to think about the stability of TXT? The idea of stability or the idea of instability definitely comes a lot from a lot of high theoretical formations. Mm-hmm. What What is happening to that right now, would you say? Mm. To notions of textual stability. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that my, my work in book history, for example, has taught me is that the kind of fixity and solidity that we associated with text as a printed phenomenon, that in and of itself is a relatively recent and sort of, it it didn't come easily. A lot of early printing history, publishing history teaches us that, particularly say in the early modern period, books were very unstable objects. It was not uncommon for there to be changes, revisions that were made midway through the printing of an edition. This is why Shakespeare for example, know that they can't assume that any two copies of a given text from the period are ever exactly alike. The notion that a a printed text is something fixed and stable and unified really only, I would argue, is a 20th century development. And part of what's interesting to me now is that that sort of brief window of fixity and stability that we associate with printed matter that too is being challenged, obviously as a result of digital technologies, but more specifically the kind of uh, print-on-demand technologies that mean once again that every individual instance or copy of a book or any other publication can in fact be a unique object. So there is a kind of circularity and always to be sort of coming back to the the dramatic instability of text, whereas its solidity, that's a very artificial and sort of temporary and hard-won condition. Heading into this raging storm of unstable texts and what could happen to them, how do you use text? For purposes of this project that I'm working on, which is called Textpocalypse, um, a 
couple of words that I enjammed together. If I can just backstep for a moment, this project really has its origins more or less at the beginning of the calendar year when I started to really pay attention to what was happening with so-called generative artificial intelligence and large language models. ChatGPT is the one that most people are familiar with. It's easy to access through your browser interface, but worth underscoring that these large language models are becoming integrated into more and more of the everyday software and systems that we use, from search on the internet to word processing. Um, So both Microsoft Word and Google Docs are prototyping embeddings of language models within their their writing software. A lot of the discussion and debate that I was seeing, particularly in my Twitter stream, revolved around writing and writing pedagogy. And a lot of it involved some degree of sort of surveillance and anxiety over what's going to happen now when students can just sort of plug a prompt into ChatGPT and in seconds have a paper that they can submit. And I'm very, what should I say, I appreciate the causes for those anxieties, but I'm also lucky enough in a sense that those don't necessarily have to be my immediate concerns in the kind of work and teaching that I do. I'm not responsible for teaching a section full of first-year composition students, and I don't envy the, the people who are, but I wanted to think about the consequences of these new technologies in a a more expansive way. And so I began to just play with a thought experiment. Apocalyptic discourse is so much of a piece with our times, everything from the pandemic and the environment to the, the collapse of governmental institutions and on and on and on. I began playing with the idea of, well, could text do us in, in the end. Maybe not a microscopic bug, maybe not a nuclear warhead, but could we be ended by text? And so I began thinking about scenarios where large language models like ChatGPT began to dump their outputs back out onto the open web. And that is indeed something that we've seen beginning to to happen in recent months. And eventually, since, as we know, these models are trained on corpora of texts that are largely scraped from the open web, inevitably they would begin training and essentially feeding upon themselves, and you have a kind of cycle. And... There's a dramatic sense in which people sort of imagine artificial intelligence bringing about the singularity and sort of Terminator-like scenarios, but there's also another possibility or eventuality, which is that text which we rely on for so much of our basic everyday interaction and communication becomes an inherently estranged medium. Prosaically, that means we cannot assume that a given instance of text is authored by by a person. And so that sort of bedrock belief, that foundational belief that text is a form of human communication begins to, to break down. Okay. 
So there have been several times in the 18th and 19th centuries with the sophistication of print capitalism when people have felt that there is too much writing, like too many newspapers, too many, uh, you know, uh, at, at least in the European context from what I read, but I don't remember the citations. And, um, you know, is is there, you know, value in kind of reading that moment with this one as analog in some ways? And also, like, is Apocalypse one of sameness? Are texts going to look like each other? That's a really good sort of provocation. So, yes, always historicize. I try to be a good historicist. I think I'm a pretty good one. A lot of my scholarly work has been in various material and historical forms of the literary and archival record. Having said that, I also think there are limits to our impulse to historicize. And there's a kind of danger in assuming that there is never anything truly new under the sun, or that differences are always differences of degree and never differences of kind. Science fiction authors love the scenario of the automated writing machine. Any number of them have tried their hand at it. Stanislaw Lem, Arthur C. Clarke, it goes back to at least Gulliver and Gulliver's Travels when there's an episode involving an automatic writing machine. Having said that, I don't know that I would have thought that I would necessarily live to see technologies that are capable of producing reasonable facsimiles, not just of sentence fragments or the next word like autocomplete on our phones, but reasonable facsimiles of entire documents that can then circulate and perform the function that a lot of mundane, routinized documents from all sorts of bureaucratic and sort of procedural and instrumental writing to, yes, student and even academic papers, right? There's something qualitatively different when we're talking about full documents that are being generated in this way. And so this goes back to the point about there being new things under the sun. And I'm very sensitive to the histories involving prior so-called information revolutions and information deluges, both with regard to print history and the digital, but this feels different to me. This feels new. And that's really where the text apocalypse scenario comes from. It's chiefly born of my own anxieties. For my final question, let's center attention on this thought experiment of yours. How will text save the world? I've been having, as you can probably sense, my share of fun with the text apocalypse scenario. But I think the real kind of urgency, to the extent the project has urgency, is in fact situating it within a kind of spectrum of different eschatologies, not of text necessarily, but of the internet. It turns out that a lot of people have been thinking about the end of the internet in various ways. Now, to the question of will text save us, what I'm trying to think through is whether or not text will in fact end us rather than 
save us. There's certainly an environmental and ecological balance to that question. As we know, these language models consume vast amounts of computational resources, which require a lot in terms of real-world power and energy, and they leave a massive carbon footprint. So there's that whole set of considerations. So it turns out that the the textpocalypse scenario that I've been envisioning, there's already a, I don't know if one wants to call it a theory, a a conspiracy theory, a thought experiment, but what's known as the dead internet, which is a belief that's actually been circulating for a few years now that Everything you read online is, in fact, fake and synthetic and artificial and manufactured, not sort of in the the sense that we would appreciate where, of course, everything is mediated and conditions of production, but everything is sort of faked as the result of some kind of illusion or simulacrum, right? The internet is a kind of vast illusion and simulacrum. This is called the dead internet theory. People have thought about the end of the internet in other ways, um, solar flares, the EMP, the electromagnetic pulse associated with nuclear detonations, which would fry electronic systems of all sorts. In some ways, textpocalypse really owes the most debt to what's referred to as the gray goo scenario in nanotechnology, where you essentially have nanotech that gets out of control, it's self-replicating, and it ends up literally submerging the world under a kind of avalanche or tide of gray goo, gray sludge, matter that is essentially antimatter. Textpocalypse can be thought of as the gray goo scenario for the internet, whereas a result of these language models, not only is there a kind of deluge and flood and tsunami of content that overwhelms our capacity to process as humans, but also, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, there's also a kind of homogeneity that sets in, a kind of erasure of difference. And you know, I would just append to that a kind of pointer to the very well-known Stochastic Parrots paper by Bender et al., which has explained precisely this risk for the kinds of training sets that are currently in use for large language models, their homogenization, and their perpetuation of various forms of harms and stereotypes that now become sort of embedded within the the internal logics of these models. That sounds pretty apocalyptic. (laughs) That does sound pretty apocalyptic. Thank you so much for giving us this very succinct but so probing conversation. Thank you. Thank you for talking to us. And we can't wait to read Textpocalypse in book form. Thank you. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. Sharonic Bosu and Kim Adams edit our audio. And Sharonic Bosu manages our social media. You can find High Theory on the New Books Network and also on hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.